0: Text, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17 to 19. Would you stand with me as we read this text together? We read from the Psalms about the sovereignty of God. This is a theme that goes in tandem with that very topic. From verse 17, we read, For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God are to entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your wonderful word. Only you could open our eyes to see the wonder of truth. Otherwise, Lord, it will pass right by us and we will miss the greatest opportunity, the greatest riches that you have given to mankind. They're all found in Christ. Thank you for revealing Jesus Christ to us, our Savior, our Lord, I pray that you would not let the weakness of your servant come between you and the people of God, the flock of Christ. May they receive the truth that is meant for them today as we unfold this passage. Give us illumination, give us understanding, I pray. Grant us grace as we come before you. We say, humble us so that we would not be deprived of the grace that you want to give us. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen, please be seated. So far, we've been looking at Peter's perspective on the topic of suffering. He addresses the Christians, also called aliens, as he calls them such in first chapter, who were suffering for Christ's sake. And he also addresses the Christians who are being purified through the various hardships. Present in their lives. One of the things that surprises me about Christians today is that when a suffering comes, typically Christians in the West fall apart. We fall apart. We we just uh, one diagnosis and we fall apart. A death, we fall apart. We just fall apart, and that should never be. We should never fall apart. Suffering is not a curse. Suffering is a blessing. We need to remember that. It is God who's working in us an eternal weight of glory that will be revealed when we stand before Him. The Christians who were suffering persecution for Christ's sake, then, as the Christian I just mentioned in Israel, were counted worthy, counted worthy to suffer. That's not the case for the Christians in the West. We have not been given that suffering yet. But we can identify with the Christians who are suffering as a means of purification. And God does bring suffering into our lives. I am surprised at how many times people, as soon as they get sick, they start claiming promises like this. In Jesus' name, I'm healed. Instead of providentially saying, Lord, if this illness came into my life, And you foresaw that I needed salvation and did everything to provide that I would become a child of God. Certainly, this illness did not come in by surprise. It didn't fall through the crack, it was meant by you. We have a hard time saying those words. If this setback, financial setback, if this struggle in my life has happened, it is because you have designed it. We have a hard time saying that. We need to grow. Judgment begins in the house of God. Discipline begins there. Those outside the house of God are not disciplined. Their destiny is the wrath of God. Therefore, we should not complain when pain, suffering, hardships, whatever, any trial that comes, we should not complain. Since God has paid such a great price for the salvation of the elect, he will not fail in bringing any of the elect into glory. He can't. That's why he brings in suffering. That's why he introduces pain. He will not fail. As Paul says in Philippians 1 verse 6, I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work among you will complete it by the day of Christ Jesus. He is going to finish what he started, beloved. He saved you. He saves you to the uttermost. That's it, because God is sovereign. And as I said last Sunday, God did not save you to make you happy. God did not save you to make you happy. He saved you to make himself happy. First. That's the first thing. Too often we're trying to convince people to give God a chance. What rubbish. Give God a chance. As if God needs us to give him a chance. Imagine Moses going to the Israelites while they were slaves in Egypt and saying to them, Let's get, give God a chance. Let's just give, we don't know what he's going to do. Let's give him a chance. They had no say in the matter. I'm going to deliver you. You're going to go to Mount Sinai. I'm going to give you the law. You're going to be my people. I'm going to bring you into the promised land. That's the plan. You don't know negotiation. Because you don't have a clue what you need. Because if the Israelites were to determine what they needed, they would have said, Well, let's see. Maybe a little house here in Goshen and maybe you know maybe a hundred sheep. Can I have a hundred sheep? Could I just be happy with a hundred sheep? I mean, maybe a camel or two. That's what they would ask for. But God has a far greater plan. And that plan includes suffering. God doesn't need or want your chances. Your life is being held by a thread. He is the one giving you chance after chance to repent. God gives us opportunities that we don't deserve. And he does it moment by moment. God is long-suffering and patient, not willing that any of those he has predestined to glory end up lost. Those whom he has foreknown, he will call out of darkness, since we don't have the wherewithal to even come up with a request. I think of my prayers when I started my walk with the Lord, now I look at them and say, "How? why did I pray that? The reason why we pray those prayers is because we don't have an understanding of His greatness. We don't have a clue of how wonderful and majestic He is and how much He's preparing for us. I always bring this illustration. Prince George, little George. He comes to his daddy, which is Prince William. And he says, Daddy, Daddy, I lost my Lego blocks. I lost my Lego blocks. Prince George doesn't realize that he is the next king of the British Commonwealth. And he's crying over a Lego block. That's how we are. That's how we are. But as he grows, he understands more and more. He understands that the queen and Charles and William are preparing him so that he becomes the next monarch. God is preparing us so that we can understand that his plan is really the plan. Everything else is not. We don't know what to do with our temporary lives, much less with our eternal destiny. We don't know what to pray for. All we want is immediate comfort. Lord, please give me a job. How many times people call me, can you please pray? I need a job. Please pray. I need a, I need a wife. I need a husband. Please pray. I need, I need a car. I need a... This is what we pray for. But when we know who He is, what He's preparing, we're not going to pray those prayers. We're going to th- remember that He is providing those things automatically. Did you pray for your heart to pump? Did you pray for your lungs to breathe in oxygen? But God has been doing it. I mentioned it on Wednesday. Are we praying for the bees that decline in the bee colony? Is anybody praying for that? Did you wake up this morning praying for the bees? Nobody's been praying for the bees. 20% bee decimation every year, 20%. That's frightening. If the bee colony disappears... If it totally disappears, listen to me. Albert Einstein said humanity cannot survive five years without bees. Five years. One third of the crop that comes from the US, one third, is thanks to the bees. They pollinate. If there are no bees, prices will go through the roofs. We will starve. That's what's going to happen. Who's been praying for the bees? Anybody been praying for the bees? We don't have a clue what to pray for. We don't understand. But God does. And that's why He gives us the plan. He says, Don't worry about everything. Don't worry about the glaciers that are melting. Don't worry about the bee calling that's decreasing. Don't worry about COVID 19. Don't worry about all these fears. Trust me. Trust me. Isn't that wonderful? Because if I trust myself, I'm going to fail. I'm going to pray what? Lord, provide me a car, provide me a house, provide me a job, make sure I have enough money, take care of my health. That's all I'm going to be praying. I'm going to be praying these limited, infantile prayers. Infantile! That's what most Christians pray in the West. They do not pray, open my eyes that I may see the wonder of your grace. Open my eyes that I may see how sovereign you are. Nobody prays that prayer. How sad. The other day, I was watching a video clip on, uh, about grass. You know, I have a thing with grass. So, I was watching, I was turning this thing on in grass, and who comes on? Tony Robbins. I said, Let's, all right, I've got to listen to this, you know. And here he says, I'm mad. I said, what is he mad about? I'm mad, he goes. Really, that big voice of his, you know. And you know what he, what he said? I'm mad because you are being prevented the future you want. You could have the future you want. Really? <laughs> I don't even know what the future I want. Do you know the future you want? Does anybody know the future they want? The best we can say is, well, I want so many RRSPs. I want this kind of life insurance. I want this kind of a house. I want this kind of a car. What, what, what's the future you want? What is it? Please explain it to me. Lego blocks. That's what it is. It's all Lego blocks. God knows The future that you need. Not me. Not you. That's a myopic statement. We're not in a position to know our own future. The only future that matters is the one that God has prepared for his children. Eye has not seen, ear has not heard, the heart has not conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. What a wonderful truth. He has prepared a marvelous future that really counts And what Christianity is, is this. When you accept Christ, you come because of a need. There's a need in your life. And that need was designed by God. It could be an illness. It could be a financial setback. It could be marital problems. There's a need. And you come crying to God. And because you're one of the elect, God reveals himself to you and saves you. He doesn't necessarily take away the problem. But he saves you. Because he wants you to be his. And then from that moment on, we are to grow, grow. And we leave the infantile prayers and we embrace the prayers that are designed for our maturity, our growth. And we start praying, Lord, open my eyes. Help me to see how wonderful your grace is. And no we'll longer pray those infantile prayers. That's what happened to me. We're here not to. Be impressed with the world. Don't be bamboozled by it. Don't be disturbed by what's going on. Don't be swayed. We don't know what's happening around us. It doesn't matter. We are part of the kingdom of God. And we've been given a mission while in the world as aliens to be the fragrance of Christ, to speak the gospel, to share the gospel. Do this. Please do this more than anything else. The other day I was watering my grass and talking to Andrew at the same time. And um, I can never have a conversation less than one hour with Andrew, because one thing dovetails into another, into another, into another. We talk about a lot of things, a lot of things happening, God is doing wonderful things. And as I'm doing this, a guy pulls up, and he comes out of the car, and I didn't recognize him, and he walks up to me and he says, you don't recognize me, Pastor John. I said, well, keep talking. Then I realized it was Frank, I hadn't seen him in years. I said, Frank, why are you here? He goes, I came from the South Shore to tell you something. Remember when you used to pray with me 17 years ago? Well, it impacted my life. I've changed, completely changed. I'm the Lord's now. You see, you sow the seed, and you never know when the harvest will take place. You never know. I can tell you story after story about things like that. Sow the seed of the gospel. That's what we're here for. We are the fragrance of Christ. Do not be obsessed with COVID-19. Don't be upset. Should I take the the vaccine? Should I not take the vaccine? Don't be troubled. Make a decision. Live with it. You're not going to live because of the the vaccine, and you're not going to die if you don't take the vaccine. You die. You live as a child of God when God determines. Psalm one thirty nine. Live with that truth. Don't feel safe. I heard someone say, "I feel safe now. I have the vaccine. Really? (laughs) Good luck." And then someone says, "I I don't know about this vaccine." I'm not sure. Brothers, sisters, we are living in two worlds, this world and the next. And we are aliens in this one. We belong to this one. We are citizens of another world. And in this world, we are the fragrance of Christ. Take the vaccine. Don't take the vaccine. Do as you wish. But please, you are the fragrance of Christ. That's what you are. Don't forget that. So let's see this passage. It is with difficulty that the righteous is saved. What will become of the godless man and the sinner? Verse 18. Before I deal with the passage, I have to debunk two interpretations that are very common. Remember what uh, Joseph Goebbels said. The Nazi minister of propaganda. He was the man behind Hitler, by the way. Read up on him fascinating man, a diminutive man, five feet five, thin, small, petite, but evil to the core, far more than Hitler himself, Joseph Goebbels, he said this, I'll say it again, a lie said once remains a lie, a lie said a thousand times becomes true, and that's why I'm going to debunk two lies regarding this passage, two, that's where we're going to start, Because if I don't debunk lies, and we don't debunk it to ourselves, we believe it. Because we've listened to these lies over and over. I was one of them. First, what is Peter not saying then? Peter's not saying these words. Christianity is not easy. It's really difficult to be like Jesus. He's not saying that. I'll say it again. Peter's not saying Christianity is just not easy. It's really difficult to be like Jesus. It's really difficult. It's going to be hard all the way. All the way to heaven. It's going to be really hard. It's a tight rope. It's a narrow gate. It's a straight path. You're going to fall to the right, to the left. Be careful. Some people wear their bracelet. What would Jesus do? Good luck with that. In this situation, what would Jesus do? I'll look at the bracelet. Yeah, I know what Jesus would do now. Good intentions, but they just, just don't work. Imagine, for example, I would have gone to Peter, just to, under, to stress this point. And forgive me if I'm going to stress a lot today. Right? Well, Peter's in the boat, and there's a storm, and Jesus is walking on the water. And I would go up to Peter and say, Peter, if you try really, really, really hard, I mean, if you concentrate, you focus, just focus, Peter you could walk on water. Does that make sense? Well, oh, John, that doesn't make sense. Well, how can we sit in the churches? Just focus, just concentrate. Be focused, be focused, be focused. We say that all the time. Christianity is not hard. Christianity is as easy as walking on water. It's impossible. That's the truth. Christianity is never hard. Whoever said it's hard? If you think it's hard, it means that you could do it. All you got to do is try, and try very hard. Just try. Just read, and just pray, and just go to church, and just do some good works. Just try very hard, because you're going to make it if you try very hard. That's what a lot of Christians believe. I was one of them. Now, we say we're saved by grace. But we live as though we're saved by performance. We think we have to try hard. I've got to try. I've got to do my best. I've got to go to church. I've got to go to church. Then when something comes around, something comes up. and Oh, my goodness. Then you feel guilty because you're trying too hard. And you're trying and you're sinking. And you're sinking. You're trying. You're sinking. You're trying. You're sinking. You're trying. And that's the Christianity that many people have. And that's not the Christianity that God designed for us. You cannot try your best to be like Jesus. Nowhere in the scriptures do we read, try to be like Jesus. It doesn't say that. Nowhere. Find it. Please find it if you know where it is. I'd like to know. If you were to succeed in being like Jesus, you would end up being proud. And there goes your achievement. You have something to boast about if you succeed in being like Jesus. Paul gives a succinct explanation in his letter to the Galatian believers who were deceived, by the way, into thinking they had to try to be acceptable to God. And so they were eating kosher meat. They were following certain diets, the Jewish diets. They were following the festivities. And you could do it other ways. You don't have to follow the festivities, right? A Christian can do it other ways. I've got to, we make up our set of rules, and I've got to do all these things. And when we don't, we stumble, we fall, we get defeated, we feel guilty. Thankfully, God is merciful, and the elect, he upholds them. But he lets them go through that process. He made me go through that process for years. I don't want you to suffer like I suffered for years. There's no need. Understand what I'm going to tell you today and you will live free, free, victorious, and joyful lives. Paul explains what Christianity is about in his letter to the Galatians, chapter 2, verse 20, verse 21. Please underline this passage if it's not underlined in your Bibles. Please read it every single day. Please pray it every single day. Please bring it to the Lord every single day. I have been crucified with Christ. That means You, self, has been killed, dead. But when we try, we resurrect self. It is no longer I, self, who lives, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. I do not... Underline this a few times for yourself. I do not nullify, render void, make powerless the grace of God. That's Christianity. Paul has been debating with Galatians. He's telling them, who has bewitched you? Why are you starting to observe all these laws? Why are you doing all of this? I'm an expert at those things I used to do this. I've discovered God's grace. That's what I preach to you. But you have fallen from grace. You're now committed to living a life of observance, of effort, of trying your best. And you have fallen from grace. It is not difficult to be a Christian. It's impossible because to say it's difficult means that I can still do it. The best of us can do it. The best of the best of the best, as they say in men, man, men in black. You get the best of the best of the best, and they can do it. God doesn't take the best of the best of the best. God takes the weakest, the worst, the nobodies, and he makes them trophies of grace. That's God's doing. Peter's not saying it is difficult to be a Christian. Why? Why? because Christianity is impossible. It's as easy as walking on water. How did Peter walk on water? By divine enablement. How are you a Christian? By divine enablement. How can you be the husband you want to be? By divine enablement. How can you be the father you want to be? By divine enablement. How can you be the Christian you want to be? By divine enablement. It's all by faith. And when you're not walking by faith, you sink. You sink into anger. You sink into lust you sink into pride, you sink into fear, you sink into discouragement, you sink. But you never sink beyond the reach of his hand. How wonderful. God lets you go through those experiences because he wants you to learn to walk by faith, by divine enablement. He wants you to learn the power of his grace so that you, like Paul, can say, I live yet not I, but Christ lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the son of god who loved me and gave himself for me. That's why he tells the Galatians, "What are you doing? Why are you going to something that I never taught you? You're going to become you are legalists. You've been bewitched by the Judaizers. Why are you doing this?" And many Christians today, many Christians, most instead of living that life of grace, live a life of trying and they have guilt and they feel defeated how do you know that you're trying and you're not living a life of faith very simple is there joy in your life you see a life of trust brings joy constant joy this is joy 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 you're moving about you're doing things and you're just doing them in joy you're working and you're working in joy you're working and you're serving and you're serving in joy nothing brings you down nothing you're walking on water It's divine enablement. I know. For years, I didn't have that. For years. It was miserable. It was hard. Thankfully, God never let go of me. That's a good thing. He never lets go of those who believe that they have to try, try, try. I told you that in the series on Reformed theology, that the first doctrine that really grabbed my heart was the doctrine on perseverance of the saints. I know some people call it the preservation of the saints. I, don't, I prefer perseverance because it, there's a synergy between the Christian and God's doing. Preservation means that God preserves you, and that's true, but that's not the only aspect of that uh, doctrine. Is also uh, perseverance, that Christian works out his salvation in fear and trembling, and that's why I prefer that word. But I told you in that do- series that that was the first doctrine of the doctrines of grace that grabbed me, that changed me. But I had to learn it. And it took me a long time to learn this doctrine. And what I'm sharing with you, I'm sharing from my heart. Because I do not want to see you, beloved, live a life of defeat, of guilt, of, of sinking always into the water, of fear, of lust, of pride, of anger, and, and lack of discipline. Oh, you could walk because God made that life available. The key is this. Remember. God gives grace to the humble, to the humble. Grace happens when we humble ourselves. When we can't humble ourselves, just ask him, Lord, humble me. And you'll discover that, that that impossible life of walking on water is possible in Christ. You'll discover what Paul discovered, that it's not up to you, that it's up to him, living his life in you, through you, moment by moment, that joy, that Holy Spirit. You're sharing Christ wherever you are. It is a remarkable life. There's nothing like it. I've been experiencing it for the past few months, and it's amazing. There is nothing like living this kind of life. And I'm encouraging you. Do not be discouraged. If your flesh is flaring up, don't be discouraged. If the world is so magnetic, don't be discouraged. If you find the enemy distracts you, don't be discouraged. You're going through a process God will bring you to the point where you will walk by faith, enabled by his grace, and you, like Paul, will say, I've been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. This verse does not mean, where Peter says, that the righteous are saved with difficulty. It doesn't mean that the Christian life is difficult. It isn't difficult. It is impossible. And it's only possible by grace. Remember when the disciples said, Lord, then who can be saved? Jesus says, what is impossible to men is possible to God. That's a beautiful truth. That's the sovereignty of God at work. Now, like I said, Paul was a master at trying. He was You could say he was the Olympic gold medalist at trying to be religious, at trying to be acceptable to God. Nobody beat Paul. Nobody. So when he saw it in the Galatian church, he pinpointed it, he attacked it, and he told them, foolish Galatians. That's how he called them. Read the letter to the Galatians. He's hard. He is merciless because he knew the gospel was in jeopardy in the life of the Galatians. He says, if I were to come to you, or if an angel would come to you, or if anyone comes to you and preaches another gospel than the one I've told you, let him be accursed. Paul was such a master at trying. There was nobody that could beat him at that. Nobody. This is what he says about himself in Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 to 6. Although I myself could boast, this is before he becomes a Christian. As having confidence, even in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he, has, he is confident in the flesh, I have more reasons says I can beat any one of you at trying. When it comes to trying, I'm number one. Notice what he says. First, I've been circumcised the eighth day. Who of you is circumcised, he says to the Galatians, the eighth day? They weren't, they were all Gentiles. Of the nation of Israel, who of you is of the nation of Israel? Of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. I'm the cream of the crop. As to the law, a Pharisee. Who of you has ever been trained as a Pharisee? I know scriptures by heart. From the age of five, I knew the Torah. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness, according to the law, found blameless. No one could pinpoint anything wrong in my life. That's how perfect I was. I should be saved in the law by trying. Paul was arrogant. Paul was saying to the Galatians, you are living the Christian walk as I used to live as a Jew. That's what you're doing. You have fallen from grace. You've corrupted the gospel. Paul had discovered that we cannot please God apart from grace. The law says love your neighbor. Christ goes further and says love your enemies. The law says don't commit adultery. Christ says if you lust after a woman in your heart, you've committed adultery. Christ says you have to be perfect. As your heavenly Father is perfect. What he did, Jesus came and he just lifted up the ante. Jesus did not make it easy. Jesus says, look, it's here. That's what the law of Moses says. I'm going to bring it here. So everybody looked at it and goes, wow, nobody can do that. Exactly. That's the point. Because we tried telling you that with the law and you became, became religious and legalist. So since the law is not clear enough, I'm going to make it extra clear. Perfect like he's perfect. Can you do it? Can you walk on water? No. The answer is no. It's not difficult. It's impossible. Second wrong interpretation. So that's the first wrong interpretation. Second wrong interpretation is this God saves some, but he loses some along the way. It's difficult to save them all. You know, some feel that it's what Peter's trying to say here. In other words, God has a very hard time in saving the lost. He's trying very, very hard, very hard. But, you know, once you save some, what do you see? Oh, the world pulls them back in, and the flesh brings this one down, and the devil succeeds in, this, in, in, in blinding this one. My goodness, there's God and, G- and the Father and God the Son wringing their hands. We tried without one. What can we do? We tried without one too, but, you know, let's hope we can get enough in heaven. What do you think? Let's just keep doing it. Let's t- and here's the church. Lord, please, Lord, save, please. You know we're begging God as if that's what we're doing. We pray, we wait, we evangelize, we wait. Oh, but my goodness, it's so hard. God is really having a hard time saving people. It's a corrupt world out there. It's really corrupt. It's getting worse. The Antichrist is just around the corner. He's just making things really difficult for us. Only a few are gonna make it. Only a few. What can we do? Unfortunately, some get lost along the way. Here's a problem with this interpretation man's heart hasn't changed from the Garden of Eden. He was dead in his sins then, after he disobeyed, and he's dead in his sins today. He was dead in his sins in the days of Jesus, and he's dead in his sins today. Nothing has changed. You can't be worse than dead. Dead is dead. That's the worst. That's the worst. Again, it is a divine act. Salvation is not something we can do. Belief is after regeneration. We only believe because God monergistically, that means unilaterally, that means God himself, comes into the soul of a man and quickens him. He goes to the bottom of the sea and he takes that soul and he resurrects him. That's why Peter says you have been brought To life. It's not that you were in a comatose state. And there you were. Half dead. Sort of sick. And he comes in and says. Do you want to live? Do you want to live? And he needed your yes. No. No. He didn't need your yes. You're dead. And he comes in. Dead in your sins. Ephesians 2 verse 1. That's what we were. Sovereignly. God came. Sovereignly. He resurrects. Sovereignly, he brings you to life. So God and the Father and God the Son are out there wringing their hands, saying, my goodness, I hope we can keep them all the way. What do you think? You think the devil and the world and the flesh are really that powerful? And You think they're going to somehow outwit us? I don't know. I think, I think maybe you will. Please. The same power that saved sinners then in the days of the apostles, the same power that saves sinners today. If God could stop someone like Paul, called Saul of Tarsus, on his way to Damascus, bent on persecuting, arresting, and torturing Jewish Christians, if he could stop him on the road and bring him to his knees, he stops anybody. Nothing is too hard for God. Nothing. That's why it says in John 17, when he's praying, to the Father. This is his priestly prayer. He says these words, while I was with them, he says to the Father, I was keeping them in your name which you have given me and I guarded them and not one of them has perished. Not one except the son of destruction which means Judas. So that scripture might be fulfilled. I am not asking, verse 15, that you take them out of the world but that you keep them away from the evil one. If, any Christian gets lost, the prayer of Jesus has not been fulfilled. And God's not going to let that happen. God is never, ever going to let his son fail. He will see the fruit of his travail, he will see the results of his labor. When he said it is finished, he meant that. He didn't say, Well, nearly, we nearly did it, dad. It's finished. He did it. He saved. Those he foreknew, he predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. It's finished. It's done. So, Peter's not saying, one, the Christian life is difficult. Not saying that, because the Christian life is impossible. Secondly, he's not saying God can't save them all. He loses some along the way. He tries, he tries, he really tries. You know, what can you do? (laughs) I mean, sometimes I, I say those words and I think, Lord, forgive me for even saying it. They're blasphemous. Both of these positions undermine the sovereignty of God. God is sovereign. Please understand this doctrine. Sovereign. In control. Fully in control. Moment by moment. There's not a molecule that is random in this world. Nothing moves on its own. Nothing. He is fully in control. If we believe any one of these interpretations, God is incidental. He's not in the driver's seat. That's not true. You're not God. He's God. The devil is not God. He's God. The world is not God. He's God. He's sovereign. God is in control. Not the enemy. And if we believe the enemy is successful, or the the world or the flesh, your flesh, are successful somehow in taking you away from Christ. I know some people have come to me and said, I've lost, I've lost everything. I've lost my flesh is just so powerful. You don't understand what it's doing to me. They just don't have a good understanding of scriptures of, of grace. All they need is their eyes to be enlightened to see how powerful God's grace is. Or they need to be regenerated. Those that believe that the enemy is doing his darndest to take people away from Christ and that he's quite successful in doing so are making Satan sovereign. Satan is the winner. These two interpretations undermine the sovereignty of God and the work of salvation. These interpretations do not stand the scrutiny of Scripture. I don't have much time. I'll close with this. I'll have to continue next week. Look at the people of Israel for a moment. Look at the people of Israel. They're in Egypt. They're slaves, right? What did they have to do to be saved? Well, first, they didn't even come up with the idea. That's the first thing. They they couldn't understand the idea. In fact, when Moses started doing something that God told him to do, they said, Moses, just let us be. Just just, just go home. Go take care of your sheep. We're okay here in in Egypt. But what did they do? During the nine plagues, they did nothing. They just looked and they said, wow, what's going on? <laughs> wow, look at that. Look at that. Look at the gnats. Look at the frogs. Look at the lice. Look, look at the water turning to blood. Wow, look at the darkness. But well, We have light. Wow, they did nothing. And then when the tenth plague came, what did they do? Took some blood. They didn't understand this, by the way. And they just applied it to their doorposts. That's all. And they went inside. Now tell me, what did they do? What did they do? To be saved. What did they do? Was anyone lost? Anyone? Anyone? God did everything. Was anyone lost? Anyone at all? Look at Psalm 105, verse 37. And then he, God, brought the Israelites out with silver. He made sure they even got money. Silver, gold. They got they became rich overnight. Silver, gold. And among his tribes, there was not one who stumbled. Psalm 105, verse 37. Another version says, and no one was left behind. What does that mean? Every one of those he wanted to redeem, he redeemed. Not one, not one was left behind. God is sovereign. God is sovereign. You know, I told you at the beginning that when I discovered the doctrine of the perseverance of saints, it transformed my life completely. But I had to learn it throughout my walk. Every time I'd fall, every time I'd be discouraged, every time I would have my doubts, that doctrine was like an anchor. So here my life, was like being battered everywhere, like a boat on top of a tumultuous waters, but that anchor held me to, to um, face and would not let me go. We looked at this passage in the framework of reformed theology. That's why it's so important that we understand doctrines. Doctrine of grace. Total depravity. Unconditional election. Limited atonement. Irresistible grace. Perseverance of saints. If we don't have a good understanding, a grasp of these doctrines, we're going to take verses like this and twist them out of context. We will make... A smorgasbord. And that's what the church has done. I know that because I was one of them. Please do not fall into error. Please understand the doctrines of grace. Ask the Lord to reveal them to you more and more. So that when you read a passage like this, you won't come across 20 interpretations leading you astray. You've got to try hard. You've got to try because the Lord saves with difficulty. Oh my goodness, the Lord saves, but you know, some get lost along the way. That's what I heard all my life. Be careful, Satan is sneaky. He's a crafty fellow, that Satan. Be careful. There I was living in fear because I didn't understand the perseverance of saints. That's what the Reformed theology does it anchors you, it makes you strong. You can weather anything, learn them well. Learn them well. I'll conclude next week. Let's pray. Father, I come to you with great gratitude. and My thanks will only grow in the years to come until I meet you face to face, and then I will explode in gratitude for what you have done in the lives of these beloved children of yours. I thank you for each one of them. I thank you for their Diligence in reading scripture. I thank you for those who are growing in grace, for those who are struggling and are living a life of Christianity that is performance-based and experiencing nothing but sinking into the water. Lord, at least if they are yours, there's nothing to fear. But those who have no desire for you, those who have no desire for the word, I pray that you would quicken them. I pray they would come to know who you are they would see how amazing your grace is. That they would fall in love with this Savior that did everything for them. Lord, I pray that we would understand that we could only work out our salvation in fear and trembling because it is you that works in us, both to will and to do according to your good pleasure. Help us to understand that when Paul says, I have fought the good fight, I have run the race, I have kept the faith, He could only do that because of the grace that was abundant in his life. Without your grace, we can do nothing. Jesus said it clearly. Without me, you can't do a thing. Help us to abide in you. Help us to understand what that means. Help us to experience and taste the grace of God so that the fruit of Christianity, the fruit of grace, will abound in our lives to the glory of God. Of your name. I prayed for every one of your children who are here. I prayed for those who are going to follow on the different platforms. I pray, O oh Lord, that the church of Christ would be delivered from this erroneous thinking, from the lies of the enemy, and discover the abundant life that is available only in Christ. That we would not be legalists, that we would not be antinomians, but that we would understand the power of God as we work out a righteousness that is produced by the grace of God. Help us to discover it, to live it, and to to delight in you, I pray, in the wonderful name of Jesus. Amen.